morning. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 3, 13 through 21. Speaking to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Kim, for reading that. Really appreciate that. Thank you to the Perkins family. It's been great getting to know you guys over the last 18 months, two years, four years. I have COVID memory, so it's kind of, but, um, but interesting to hear from you guys. I, you know, not to spill beans and everything, but just knowing a family that's put things on the line for Christ and needed to learn how to depend on him in greater ways. And so I really appreciate your example, not just the reading, but just with what the Lord's doing in your life. And I trust in the lives of so many others here this morning, and and so um, I I am really drawn into this um, theme of of desperation this morning through the music and the time of worship that we had. I didn't put a lot of thought into what the worship team had prepared for us to sing this morning in connection with the message, and yet as we're drawn into these songs of desperation, we're crying out to the waymaker, and I know that there's so many. Uh, sorry. sorry. Okay, I got to get through a half an hour at least of this message. It's going to be difficult. But I know there's so many of you that need a waymaker this morning and need the Lord to show up in your lives and to do some incredible things. And so we pray for that for you. And we know that when you sing these songs, you're not just singing a melody. You know, you're not just trying to let other people know that you're trying to participate, that you're actually shouting a prayer of desperation up to the Lord. Your Lord, be the waymaker in my life. And do the things that only you can do. And the song that Doug just led us in, in that time of desperation, and I don't know whether or not it was a technical glitch that we didn't have lyrics up. Is that the computer doing its thing? Okay, that's what's been happening to us a lot lately, and it just has a mind of its own. And and yet at the same time, there was a desperation we had of not being able to follow along lyrically. And being led into that dependence on the Lord. And, and I'm wondering as I'm singing, I'm like, Lord, what would I do if, if I didn't have you spelling out everything in front of me all the time? Would I still enter into worship? Would I still have reliance on you? And that's why that song was even made even more powerful through a technical glitch in my estimation is because of what it conveyed. That we're not here for the Lord to give us some additional blessing. He's been so good to us already. That even though we cry out to him in desperation, it isn't because he owes us something, but because we know that that's who he is. He's the way maker. That is who he is. So we cry out to him and we depend on him. And in coming into the passage in Ephesians 3, as we wrap up the chapter here this morning, Lord willing, it's, it's a prayer of desperation that Paul is praying for his church, for the church. And that's the message that's been sticking with me all throughout the week as I've been sticking my nose in this passage and asking the Lord what he has for his people to hear. It's this, it's this desperation coming from Paul that there's something so great and so heavy on his heart that he can't help but to bring it to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't have any other resources to pull it off. I've never had the honor of uh, serving in the military, but the thing that keeps jumping out at me uh, again, this is going to seem like for those of you that have served and have been in combat situations, it's going to seem like a really uh, probably borderline offensive way to come at this. But my experience is through the stories of those that have been there or through movies and TV. And so seeing the sacrifice that young men and women are ready to make 
in the environment that is calling on their action. And I'm looking at this from the perch of, of a life that has been well lived and well experienced. And I just love the life that the Lord's given me. And I think if I had known then in my twenties, what I would have at nearly 50, um, uh, what I would have then, would I be willing to lay it down? And yet you see the bold sacrifice and the, the, the willingness to just lay it all down with all their lives ahead of them. Why is that? I watch that with fascination. Say, what is it that motivates somebody to be willing to risk it all like that? And it's not just in the military. It's in so many uh, of these kinds of environments that there's this thing that transcends in the moment or in the preparation or the training. There's this thing that transcends the, the life of safety, there's this thing that transcends the life of I want things my way. At some point, this attitude of sacrifice and a willingness to risk it all takes over and it becomes the only thing in that person's view. I think we see this, the spirit of this demonstrated for us here in Ephesians 3. Prayer is this thing that Christians talk about all the time. And it's central to the life of the believer. We see that in scripture that God has made it clear that we are to be people of prayer. And oftentimes, the amount of time that I've been kind of watching this play out in Christendom, in my schooling days, and in all the decades of being in the church and everything, that prayer turns into a debate. Not the act of prayer, but the reasons why we pray or the method of prayer or the posture of prayer. And, and, and we have time and we have, we have the luxury, if you will, of being able to wrestle with, well, what is prayer for? And, and, and should we do it regularly or should we do it audibly or should we do it with our eyes open? As I saw when, when I was growing up in church, let's share with you this story. I remember being completely wigged out as a kid because I looked up the guy that was closing in prayer because the pastor would say, Hey, come up and close in prayer. And the guy that was closing his prayer was just looking out straight while he was praying and it gave me the heebie jeebies. It's like, what is he doing? Is he awake? Is someone? Doing It's like when you see someone sleeping with their eyes open, you know, it's a little unsettling. But that was his focus. He was like just looking out in prayer. And, and, and I've found over the years that you change your, your method or your posture of prayer in order to focus on the thing at hand. When we run into urgent or desperate situations, we don't really have the time to overthink prayer, do we? If I've got to shout out, God, please help me show up now. You have to do the thing that only you can do. I'm not thinking about, should I have said that with my eyes open, with my knee bowed, with my, I don't have time to think about because urgency is putting me in a position of desperation. No doubt you've had certain circumstances in your life that have brought you to your knees that have caused you to, without even thinking about it, just audibly shout out, God in heaven, help me. At the time, were you contemplating the method or the posture or no? See, debate over the necessity or the mode of prayer is a luxury of the idol. The great challenge before the church, not just faith here in Waterville, but the church of Jesus Christ across the world is to shed the ambivalence of our culture and chase a mission that is so massive that prayer is a necessity the things that we talk about and the things that we have our eyes set on, we look at it and go, that sounds like an impossibility. We need a way maker to show up. We need somebody to do the thing that we don't have the human resources or the energy or the strength or the vision or the ideas or any of those things to do. Again, I believe that this is at the heart of Paul's prayer. You might remember that as we were in chapter three last week, Paul was starting to pray and then he, his thoughts were, we could say interrupted, but I think it was all on purpose. He was about to say, I'm going to drop to my knees and pray for you. But as he was thinking about it, he was like, because here's why. And here's all the reasons why I'm going to come before you in prayer. This is why you're on my hearts even while I'm in this prison cell for the last five years. So he picks back up on his prayer in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. 
Paul's great burden, which for him was, this was the vision and the mission that God had given Paul, was that the glory of God could be seen in the heart of a church being united in things that they had no other earthly business being united in, coming together for the mission of winning the world for Jesus Christ. Paul said that the church could come together in unity and accomplish something that people would step back and say, only God could have done that. Only God could have pulled that off. That was Paul's great burden, his great vision. And it was so heavy for him, the weight that he carried, that it drove him to his knees. This isn't a, just a, a fill-in. He's not just saying, well, this is, he's not being metaphorical or poetic or anything. That wasn't even the normal Jewish posture. If you've seen any images of the devout Jews at the Wailing Wall in, in uh, Jerusalem, is there's a posture of standing and kind of holding their prayer tight and rocking back and forth. And that's a sign or a posture of devotion. And so that would be more of the, if you will, the lawful way of approaching prayer but Paul says no I'm I'm burdened by this and I'm dropping to my knees in a sign of of urgency or or great respect and submission to the weight that the Lord had put on his shoulders and we're going to see in a couple of chapters that Paul keys in very clearly on submission and while he's even demonstrating it here he says for this reason I bow my knees before the father in verse 15. He says from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's burden is that the church would be strengthened. And he says, I want them to have a strength that I can't manufacture. I can't get over to them and hold the classes on Thursday night in order to do this anymore. I can't be with them to walk them through the examples of their life and say, now over here, I would say this and do this. He is chained in a prison cell. His only recourse now is to take his burdens to his father and say, please grant the church the strength to see your power and to see it move. And I love the words that he shares here because, again, he's been building this foundation of unity for the church. And so he's using all these words like father, you know, which is how he wants both Jew and Gentile to see God is that he is their father. That they belong to a family, a family that's been named. And so he's pointing them back to, you may think that you guys have just kind of haphazardly come together. But when you're in the family with, of God through Christ, your origin, your roots go back to the same starting point. That the Gentiles weren't just led into the Jewish thing. That they both, remember we said they both came out of what they were in to be made one new person in Christ. And that new person has origins back to the father. They're part of the same family. They've been named by that father. So what is he praying for? He says, God wants to strengthen his church. It's within his will to do this. He says, it's a strength that I'm praying that God would give according to his riches. And this is a key phrase because he's not just talking about giving from his riches. I'll, I'll demonstrate the difference here. If you um, run into a billionaire and you're short 10 bucks to pay for a parking meter, you might say, if it's Jeff Bezos or somebody you recognize, you're like, hey, Jeff, sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. You got the weight of the world on your shoulders. I'm short 10 bucks and I know you're good for it. Could you spot me? And he's looking through and he's trying to find a 10 through all those hundreds. Uh, sorry, as small as I got as a 50, keep the change. That's, that's giving from his riches. He's got the money. It's no big deal. But if he comes to you and says, Hey, look, I've been looking for things to give my money to and, and ha take a project under mine. I've got a million dollars with your name on it. Even though for us, that would be completely world changing and life changing for him. That's something he can do that most people can't. He can give his a million dollars from his abundant wealth without losing a whole lot of sleep over it. This is the, this is the resources and the riches that God is, is wanting to give to his church. And Paul is begging on his knees in a, in a damp cell that God would give us the clarity <clears throat> to understand that the power that we have from God comes according to his riches, not just something he can skim off the top and, and not worry about it. 
but something that only he can provide you and me. God is providing a strength that only his wealth can provide. And he says, I want this, I want, uh, Lord, I want you to do a strength that, that comes from the inner person, that it comes from the inside, not just a strength around them. This isn't like, you know, uh, rubbing the genie lamp and saying, I want this to go well and I want this to go well and I want to pick all my circumstances to serve my needs. He says, no, this power and this strength is something that comes from within, even if it isn't demonstrated on the outside through health and wealth and all these kinds of things that the change is coming from within. And we see this shift happen in the New Testament because in the Old Testament, demonstrations of power was something everybody could witness. It was things like fire coming down from heaven and, and seas being ripped open and all of this kind of demonstrable power that was on great display for everyone to see. And what we see the language in the, in the, in the time period of Jesus walking on this earth is that this same power, this thing that could part seas and raise the dead and everything would take place in the hearts of his believers. He says that this power would be in the inner being where you really live. You know, that deep, dark part of you or that private joy that lives in your heart, that longing of whatever you can't see or can't have or the, 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 the pain of whatever has let you down, that, that part that you kind of lock away, Paul is praying for that power to show up there in the inner being. He strengthens this, this word in Romans 8. He tells, uh, he tells us that if the spirit of him who uh, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's pretty keyed up on this fact that when you and I aren't just letting Jesus into our hearts as we have a, uh, uh, have a tendency to say so often, he says, I want the, the, that I want Jesus to dwell in your hearts. <clears throat> I can't quite put my finger on it all the time as I go through this Christian life, but it seems pretty clear that this aspect of Jesus living in my heart is a thing of degrees. When I pray and I surrender, I submit my life to Christ. I am, I am asking him for salvation. I'm asking him to come and take his place in my life and to forgive me of my sins. And I believe that he does that at the time of that surrender. I don't think that Jesus says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just save a little part of you here or anything, or maybe if you work harder, you can get more of me or any of that sort of thing. However, having Christ available in my life, which is what I see so many people wanting to keep Jesus at a distance so I can access him when I need him. It's a whole lot different than a life that is abiding in Jesus and him in me. That dwelling in our hearts would be the kind of thing that braces us or invigorates us. And if we're being honest, as we're thinking about our walk on this earth and our life before God, how much of his existence, how much of his truth, how much of his, his energy and power and supply moves us in our life as opposed to the thing we just need from him every once in a while. The amount to which you have or possess the heart of Jesus is directly proportional to the amount that he has yours. Paul could have used a couple of, or one of two words at least, when he was talking about Christ dwelling in your hearts. One would have been more like that person who stays overnight somewhere. Someone who's from out of town or maybe an invited guest without the intention to stay, without the, the, um, the, the, the mode of, of, of mindset at all that this might turn into something long term. This is just, I'm staying for a night. I hope that it's comfortable. Um, we see this in our hotel chain advertising all the time. They make it sound like this is the kind of place you'll want to live if you could. And they, like you're, like you're thinking you're going to be there and all of a sudden say, you know what? I'm going to check in for the rest of my life. They call places like the residence inn and everything. So they, they, they want your, your mind to think this is the type of place I can dwell in. But that isn't the dwell that Paul is referring to here. He's talking about a settling down. He's talking about a permanence. He's talking about coming into that place and saying, I'm not here for a rental. I'm not here until the Airbnb reservation expires. I'm here to stay. 
And Paul has to pray that we'd be willing for Jesus to do this. So it must mean that it isn't just automatic as soon as we bow our, our knees before the Lord and say, would you please save me? That somehow we've just turned into these people that always have the door open, always have a bed made for him, always have, you know, willing to do his laundry and all that sort of thing. That there must have to be a transformation that takes place in our hearts for the Lord to feel comfortable dwelling there. Is he there to stay? Or does he come as a temporary guest until you say, like, what is it? What is the expression? Like fish or something? Company gets stinky after. I don't know how it goes, but if you outstay, you're welcome. Even when we're staying in great places, we kind of be like, it's not home, though. There's a part of us that just wants to get back to the normal routine. This is the this is the dwelling that Jesus wants to have in our hearts. So Paul is praying within the will of God that, that he would strengthen his church. And he wants to do it by dwelling, by, by residing in us. And he wants his church to love others well, but also to experience his love. Picking up again in verse 17, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's so many phrases in here that if you're a Bible student, you're like, okay, can we camp out on these things? Can we take each of those phrases in between the commas and just do one message on them? No, we can't. We could, but we won't. Paul is praying for something specific. He's, he's, he's praying that we stop settling for a superficial love. One of our own making, one of our own definition, the one that seems to serve us the best, the one that we've become accustomed to looking for. He's saying, Lord, I am on my knees. I am begging you that your power would reside within them to stir up this reality that I can't manufacture in their life, that I can't make come to life. I'm praying that it just wells up within them, that they would stop settling for a superficial kind of love, one that is self-serving, one that is self-seeking, self-protecting, self-gratifying. So he prays for the church. He says that you would be rooted and grounded in love. You can look back at every era of the church and realize that love is the thing that we keep getting wrong with every generation. It's the most detrimental misunderstanding of every generation. So he gives us two metaphors and he says, if you're of the agricultural mindset, I want you to know that you need to be rooted in, dug deep within to be nourished by a love that is willing and able to withstand the test of all the things that are thrown at us. Is our love not tested all the time? And so often it's so flimsy. It's like, you know, a windstorm can blow through a whole cluster of trees, but only a couple of the trees actually fall over because they weren't rooted well or they've been ancient and rotting away from the inside. That test always seems to blow through our lives. So he says it's important that we are rooted, that we are dug deep, that we are nourished by the love of Jesus Christ, the one that was self-giving, the one that was self-sacrificial, the one that was always doing the best for the object of his love. And if your mind isn't so much agricultural, but maybe more architectural, he says to be grounded. That is to provide that firm foundation, firm enough to trust it and say, I can build my life off of this kind of love. And that's a risky venture in our day and age, isn't it? We don't trust that we could actually build a life off of a love of self-sacrifice and, and, and giving others what is best for them as opposed to what we deem to be best for us. We say there's no way that can provide for a lasting future. There's no way my house could stand. That's exactly what he intends to communicate. That's why Paul is on his knees praying for these things because they don't come naturally to us. This isn't the thing that we would put our trust in and we'd naturally be willing to risk everything to pursue that kind of love. The other day in the car, the girls and I were singing, all you need is love. It came on, dun, 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 all you need is love. 
The Beatles were more right than they realized that that is all we need. But their definition of love, if you read between the lines and see how they um, uh, position the same kind of love that the world for generation after generation has been pursuing is for the Beatles. It was like all you need is passivity. All you need is to let people just do their thing and you chill about it and you do your thing and we'll all just kind of have this groovy harmony kind of thing. That's big John Lennon's big push and big move and everything. It would have been weird for Paul to say something like, um, you know, hey, all you need is rooted and grounded love, you know? Doesn't really come off the tongue in a nice little pop song. You just got to shorten it and go, all you need is love. I'm telling you, it's all you need. The reality is, is God's love is nourishing and solid. And we can trust it to fuel our hearts and found our lives. But the, the war that we rage, that we wage in every generation about love is so massive and so urgent that Paul's saying, I've got to put prayer to this. The people aren't going to just get it because it's the right thing to do or just because it's trendy or faddish or anything. It's just the opposite of all those things. Lord, your spirit needs to break through. You need to well up within them the, the, the power that can only come from you for them to chase down that kind of love and to demonstrate that kind of love. We often go to Galatians 5 to see a description of what is called the fruit of the Spirit. This is the, the, um, the characteristics of you will, if you will, of, of those of us that are walking with Christ. And we pray for these kinds of things to show up in our life where we want to be, as the passage says, we want the, the fruit uh, of the Spirit to be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And we look at that list and say, if only I had all those things in perfect harmony and perfect balance. Why is it that when I look at some of those words, I'm like, "Mm, it's been a long time since I've been patient. I'm not really sure about the faithfulness thing. You know, every once in a while I can demonstrate demonstrate some self-control, but the moment I do, I feel good about myself. And then I, I lose the battle the next moment. Why is it that it's not consistent? One of the old theologians, Donald Barnhouse, points out how nourishing and foundational love is to all of those characteristics in Galatians 5. It's where it started. It says the fruit of the Spirit, and it starts with love. And he points out that he believes that love fuels all the other things. This is how he says it. He says love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love's holding the reins. You see, God's love is so unfathomable, it would seem, that we need a miracle to encounter it. There's so many theological reasons why Jesus needed to be born of a virgin, and I will not dismiss those by the statement I'm about to make. But in order for us to really encounter love, we had to be introduced to it through a miracle like the virgin birth. For us to say, okay, something different's happening. We can't just have the movement of a John Lennon or somebody come say, hey, all you need is love. And then we're like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. And it would change the world. It doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere. It sells millions of songs, but it doesn't really go anywhere. We needed to be introduced to a miracle in order to know this kind of love, to be able to demonstrate this kind of love. Paul knew that what he was asking God to do in the heart of the church would only come about by prayer, would only come about by this miraculous infusion in the heart's of the people that made up the church. It was the urgency of the moment that got him to drop to his knees. And so he prays that the people would comprehend this love, not just dabble in it, not just appreciate it from a distance, not just look at the church. Isn't that sweet? They take care of one another. Such a cute little church. They're really nice to each other. They smile, shake hands. We do, don't we? Yeah. All right. Just make it sure. That's what we're supposed to be about. 
but it isn't so much so that people could just dabble in it or experience it or you get every once in a while when you try something self-giving, you think to yourself, that really felt good. I'm glad that I engaged in that. Paul is saying that we would comprehend it. In other words, that we would seize it, that we would grab hold of it. We could also say that we would apprehend it. That this love would be the thing that, that moves us, controls us, and sends us out. It's the thing that has become what we can't live without. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things that I fill that blank in that I, that I don't think I can live without. And whenever I encounter the love of God, whenever I see it demonstrated in your lives to other people, or whenever I remi- I'm reminded of how much it's shown up in my own life from his grace, when I see that, I just go, man, that's all that life is about. Not about the, the hundred other things that I've put on the list of the things that I can't live without. Because when you and I really encounter true love, it radically transforms our view and our expression of love. It's that whole thing of once you've tasted the real thing, you can't go to some counterfeit. I, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek in the way that our culture says things now, but it's almost like God has ruined love for us. Does that make sense? Culture will say something like, this was so good, it's ruined everything else for me. That God has demonstrated such a pure and giving and self-sacrificing love that everything else that we have that pales in comparison, we say, well, that's not love. Next chapter, uh, as we get to the end of Ephesians, Paul's going to, after what I think is one of the most practical and, and just brilliant passages of Scripture in Ephesians 4, He's going to sum up that chapter by saying, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? What would motivate you to do that? Because it happened for you as God in Christ forgave you. The love that you've been shown, the grace and the mercy that you've been shown by God, it becomes this thing that transforms the heart of the true believer that says, that's all I can give now. That's all I can lay out to those that have offended me, have hurt me, have kicked me in the teeth. Why would you do something like that? It seems like a very idiotic approach to love. It's because it's what's been shown to me. I can't turn away from it now. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I don't want to hijack the meaning of the text this morning, but I want to just share with you what all of this has led to as far as a burden for the leadership and the hearts of the people of this church and see if I can put it into some quantifiable terms and then see if I can open up a conversation that we'll have over the next many months and perhaps, Lord willing, over the next couple of years. Uh, right now, we're, I think, on the tail end of hurricane season. I heard about like sort of one of the the, the first ones that might be a threat really our way or something. Has it already come and gone? I forgot to check. Um, but anyway, so we heard news of Hurricane uh, Fiona, right? And, um, and it's like, oh, that's right. We had hurricane season and stuff. We're so far removed from the threat of that that it often escapes me. But we've been through hurricanes before, and we've seen, of course, on TV the devastation that happens as a result of hurricanes. We have brothers and sisters in countries that we support in Haiti and others that have experienced tremendous devastation of as the result of hurricanes that we continue to pray for and seek ways to support. The church uh, in general, or at large, um, not just faith, has gone through a hurricane over the last couple of years. And as with hurricanes, sometimes they come in and kind of wipe everything out. And then sometimes the other other places experience different damage than everyone else does. And it's just sort of the, you know, to use the expression, the luck of the draw, if you will. And the church has gone through a hurricane that has... Uh, has exposed a lot of things. We went through the hurricane of of uh, an epidemic and a sickness that we couldn't get our hands on and not to revisit all of that stress and drama and stuff, but everyone had an opinion. It was all shared way too early. Nobody knew the truth of anything. And then, of course, we know that conspiracy took off and then politics were involved from the jump and everything. And, and then we experienced shutdowns and then battles within churches that says you guys shouldn't shut down and you guys should. And then there's masks and no masks. You know the whole thing, right? You were there? We did that? Now we're sitting here, and I'm getting to see so many faces of people who've just come and enjoyed worship together. Churches around the country and other parts of the world are coming together like this 
today. There's a sense in which the storm has, has moved out. And if you're studying things and you're paying attention, you know that it's not all done and it's not all behind us. But the, the biggest sense of the realization of that hurricane has sort of blown through. And, and like with any hurricane, some houses have stood differently than others and others have experienced different damage. And the church has gone through a panic and a scramble to rebuild. How do we get back what we lost? Because every church lost something. Some some churches lost people. Some churches lost money. Some churches lost their cool. <laughs> it was all kinds of loss going on in the church. And I'm sure there's a lot that would look back and say, if I could act differently knowing what I know now, I would do things differently and that sort of thing. The most effective way for any church to rebuild is to not depart from what's here in the scriptures. To not make it about how do we get back to where we were as though we knew where we were was what the Lord really wanted, what that's, the, or that's what this era or generation needs from us. Those are things we don't know. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, not to the pastor or the leadership team or even the wishes or wills of the people. We're here to serve what Jesus has called us into. And the church could easily run into a panic and a scramble to get back what we've lost. And in our particular context, it could be, how do we get back to having so many people that we have to have multiple services? How could we do things that might raise money to build sort of the property here and to make it, you know, a better place for us all to worship and come together and everything? But I believe in sensitivity and wisdom. Your leadership team a couple of years ago prayed, Lord, help us not to miss the moment. Help us not to miss what you might be transitioning this church to do and to be with what the culture needs from Jesus more than anything else. Help us to not get so blindsided by the fact that we have to get back to the things that make us feel good, that we're healthy again, or that we're stable, or that we're even flourishing. And that's been the consistent prayer, not knowing where it would lead. But we knew that the most effective way to rebuild the church and to get back to a place of health and stability would be to stay on mission, to keep moving out. Because we know that the tendency of the human heart is once we start experiencing some comfort and peace, it's like, okay, we, we made it. We weathered the storm. When the hurricane blows through and you have an opportunity to rebuild because the insurance check has been dropped on your lap and you start thinking about, remember we were talking about remodeling the kitchen? Remember, we were talking about fixing the garage. Remember, we were talking about adding that patio. When we get a little bit of daylight, and we get a little sense of, of uh, comfort from all the pain that we went through. Our imaginations in the heart of our hearts can start being turned towards selfish purposes. So the mission is laid out before us, whether the church has been rebuilt or whether we feel healthy and stable or not. But we believe that the Lord has been very faithful to us, that in the block of the hurricane moving, moving through, there's so many elements of the existence of our church that have withstood the storm. And we're very thankful for that and very humbled by that because it wasn't things that we came up with or any particular brilliant ideas or anything. But that's when the Lord started planting that seed in us and going, so what are you going to do next? Are you going to remodel the kitchen? Are you going to build the patio that you've been praying and thinking about and everything? What are you going to do with the next wave of opportunity that I have given this church? And we believe that the Lord has called us to take all that he's built in this church for stability and maturity and resources and get back into our city. And to start sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the city that we call home. We've been effective at reaching the outskirts of the city. We've, we've seen people drive great distances to come to faith and we're so thankful for you. And we, we believe that that's what the Lord is doing here. But at the same time, there's something that needs to happen because the need shows up on our doorstep every day. It shows up under your noses every day. And you're bringing those opportunities to me saying, what do we do with this? And in the midst, the Lord is raising up leaders and, and people that were able to train here and everything. And all of this is happening and, and sort of ready to move forward in so many ways. But I got to admit, it's not what I want to do. I, I do, but I don't. Can anybody relate? You, you have an opportunity to rebuild the house or be much easier just to go with what you knew. Be much easier. Just, can't we just put the fridge where it was before? I don't want to start bumping into a, the fridge in a new location in the middle of the night. Do we really need that patio? I mean, it could be. 
I would like things in my nature to be very predictable and safe. But every once in a while, more than every once in a while, something stirs in my heart about this calling the Lord's given me. And the fact that I want to put my head down on my pillow at night, I want to end my life knowing that I gave him whatever he called me to give him. And I know you can relate. But this thing that we're talking about and praying about that we don't have all the details and the plans laid out for, this can't be fulfilled without God's massive provision. That we're not trying to raise funds or do all these kinds of things for us to have bigger or better or just to have this kind of cultural isolation that so often tempts the suburban church of like, let's just get out of the war zone. We need to feel safe. We need to be whole. We need to be put back together. All we can do is stay like Paul in a kneeling posture saying, God, you've put a burden on our, on our shoulders so heavy that we can't stand underneath it. And I don't know how we're going to get there, but I can't do it without prayer. I can't do it without you, God, showing up and doing the thing that only you can do. It's not a matter of faith being comfortable enough or the resources or anything. We have enough to get started. We don't have enough to see it through. I can tell you that. Ephesians 3.19 tells us what Paul is going for when he's praying this prayer. He says that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we say, how can you know something that can't be known? Paul is saying, I want you to experience what God can do as he moves in his power. As he brings the church together in unity, then as he builds it for his glory, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses anything that I can spell out for you on paper. Anything that I can even uh, tell you is true and it exists. He goes, Lord, just show up in their life, well up in their spirit, move them out by your power so they can experience what I'm experiencing right here in this jail cell. Paul's vision for God's glory is so big that he doesn't care if it imprisons him. He thinks that's just details. As long as his mission keeps moving forward, if he has to put me in chains to do it, then who cares? His goal isn't his comfort or his safety. He wants us to experience the same otherwise unknowable love. And I believe, even though we're not prone to this kind of language at faith, that we don't try to sell you on the next big vision and we're not trying to build a golf course in the back, although I'm still not letting go of that vision. Or the things that make the staff lives more comfortable or anything like that. You know, it's it's not about me getting another watch. I've got enough, although I love them. But it's not about those things. What it's about is, Lord, are we in a position to know your unknowable love? God wants to blow our minds with the movement of his love. And I believe that he's bringing that need to our doorstep. Paul says it this way, that God wants his church to be full of him. He continues in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I would say it like this, to be consumed with Jesus and not just be a customer of his. And there's a part, if we're talking about in the degrees in which he calls us and moves us forward, there's a part of our lives that we so often hold back from him saying, I'm just not ready to go there yet. I have that conversation multiple times a day with the Lord. That he wants me to be consumed with him, consumed by him, and not just check in with him as he can fulfill my needs and my my wishes. This is how Paul also says it in Galatians 2. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus doesn't just want to occupy our hearts. He wants to own it. Has anything that you've ever pursued other than that love of Jesus, been able to make good on its promise. This is how he closes out his prayer. In this doxology, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God has heard my list over and over and over again. 
Lord, do this for your church. Lord, change this in your church or make the people think this or do this or make me more like so-and-so or make me able to do such and such. He's heard my list over and over and over again. But no matter how big or creative my list is for God's church, especially in the city of Waterville, Paul says that he wants to do far more than I can even ask or even think to ask. So as we're building unity at faith, as we're seeing the life of our church be something that is enjoyable and something that is profound and something that is uh, that we're thanking the Lord for and praising him for, we have to see that it's time for a unified church to live in this power of a sacrificial love, both towards each other as we continue to grow in that, but also towards our neighbor. And it's time for us to continue stepping into belief again that the church can defeat the stronghold of the enemy in the city that we dwell in. Not just so that we can go to war with culture and offend people who are pagans and disagree with us or anything like that, but to love it with the heart of Christ and to demonstrate that love. Some time ago, I was invited to... Uh, walk through the halls of the Capitol and and pray with various um, legislators and uh, and different people like that. And I was being introduced to some and was introduced to someone in our backyard here from Waterville. And and I knew that we would be on opposite sides of so many things. And but the intent wasn't to come and try to lobby or convince anybody of any political matters. We were invited there as pastors to pray with, if they so allowed us to pray with them. And uh, like any of you, I'd be a little, I was a little skeptical that anybody would want to hear from me uh, or allow me to pray with them, especially if they didn't have the right letter after their name or something along those lines. I don't know. Just didn't know what to expect. And I was introduced to somebody, I won't mention their name, but who um, almost immediately went into the, the, the heartbeat they have for uh, the area of addictions and, and overdose deaths and things along those lines because it was something that hit very close to home. And I was able to say, well, it's pretty amazing you say that. I said, because now for, for about six or so years, you know, our church has been really working through Celebrate Recovery and inviting people from the city and the surrounding areas or referrals from friends or people, loved ones and stuff to bring them into a recovery environment and be patient with them, pray over them, um, uh, urge them to, um, to face these things and, and to really go through the struggle with them. I said, uh, and I was trying not to do like a commercial, like Faith's got it all figured out, but I just wanted them to know that we agree on so many of these things, especially the need. And I said, you know, we've invested for years in, in uh, a women's shelter in Solon, and there's so many of these problems that we just don't know how to solve and fix and everything, so we're just doing our part. And, and, and that, so I said, she was in tears and, and starting to realize, she said, I had no idea. Like, you're in my district, you're under my, under my nose, I had no idea what was going on. I said, I feel like we're just getting started. So I don't know what's next and I don't know what's to come, but I feel like we're just getting started. And I said, I'm not even the best representative. I said, I'm not even the one fueling that and, and organizing it or doing it. It's just happening and it has its own leadership and it's taking, it's taking charge there and everything. And, and then there were more questions. What else have you guys thought about? Would you do this? And what if we got together and did this? And I'm thinking this person's on the quote unquote wrong side of the aisle. You see, we need to get back to believing that through Christ, the church can break the addictive cycle of our generation, that it can restore the family unit from the havoc of neglect and violence and selfishness. We need to believe that Christ can improve the lives of those living in the city of his church because they're in proximity to Christ followers. If we're in the picture, their lives get better. Have you stopped believing that? Have you bought the headlines that we're just the enemy and everyone thinks we're a bunch of weirdos and all this kind of stuff? Or do you think there are some actually that would disagree with us on so many things that would say, but you're solving a problem and I appreciate that. Personally, I want to see us scare the forces of darkness that seek to destroy the fabric of society. I want to put those seedy things on alert and start doing this thing of like seeing institutions closed down because of the power of prayer and the consistent testimony of God's people. I want to see a city really impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we have a big part to play in it. And you might be saying, so what are we, what are you talking about? What's your idea? When's it going to happen? All that sort of, we're trying to keep those things a little bit loose because we don't want to put God in a corner. 
We don't want to express to you that we know exactly what he's going to do. All he's calling us to right now is to be available and to be seeking him for direction. But I keep bringing our attention back to verses 20 and 21. Let me read it again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that's his power, not ours. Why? For his glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. For how long? Throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. If our church just gets fun again and we start singing great songs and it's comfortable and we build the little golf course, I keep dropping that hint, you know, and do that kind of thing. If we keep making ourselves comfortable, we're here for us and we're here for one generation. We start bringing the gospel into the darkness and this will go on and on and on. I'm going to ask for one step in this. We'll, we'll try to have some more conversations. The clock is not in our favor in terms of budget preparation and all these kinds of things. We have very faithful people looking over this, kind of agonizing over this, praying about this. As I said, on paper, it's not a great plan. So what I'm asking our church to do is to pray. To pray. Someone gave me the idea this week that I loved. To pray at 3.20 every day. For what? For Ephesians 3.20 and 21 to take place in our midst. To pray that the Lord will do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And that it would all be for his glory in the church. Not for us to pat ourselves on the back. Not to feel like the saviors ourselves coming into anything. But to just be faithful before him. The Lord is doing something in our midst. And it's the kind of thing that we can't not do in my humble opinion. It's not the fun thing, the safe thing. It's not even the the clear-cut thing. But it just very may well be what he's leading us into. And that's what I'm asking you to pray about with me. And let's do so in such a way that is so desperate for God to do only what he can do. Faith cannot do all of this. I know it. You know it. But it's only what God can do. And so we put ourselves in humble submission, bowed on our knees, in our jail cell of being his prisoner, a prisoner of the Lord, as Paul said. Lord, have us be faithful and submissive to what you would have us do. Would you please stand and let's pray together. Lord, the best place to be before you is at your mercy. The best place to be before you is without our own strength, without our own resources, without our own better ideas. But we very rarely find ourselves in that position, Lord, because we live lives of self-sustenance. We live lives of fulfilling and finding ways of achieving our own agendas. Lord, I feel like for the last couple of years, the last few years, we've been preoccupied with how do we restore the pieces of our lives that we feel like we've lost. Give us a better calling, Lord. Give us a more faithful pursuit to chase down the things that you've walked us into, that you've led us into, that you've built stability and unity in our midst to achieve. The best life we can live is one completely surrendered to you. I pray you would call us, Lord. I pray that you would build a power within us that is so clearly not us. Not a showy power for our flesh, but one of humility, one of patience, one of goodness and faithfulness and all the things, Lord, that you've called us to emulate do that kind of work and may that work be what transforms a city not gigantic riches or not slick agendas and programs but humble compassion give us the faith Lord that we don't yet have in Jesus name we pray amen